1: Hey, everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Well, we're in mid September, so we are, uh, and people are voting in North Carolina, a couple of other states, and they'll be voting in a lot of battleground states uh, before we know it. Um, so I'd start there. Um, make sure uh, everybody you know, yourself, you have a plan for what you're going to do, how you're going to vote, when you're going to vote. Also, what you're gonna do to help around the election. Are you gonna make GOTV phone calls? We may see some door knocking. Are you up for that? Uh, you're going to write postcards. Uh, continue to work social media, but uh, now's the time to have your plan and, and and execute it. There's so much going on now as it relates to the election, um, and uh, a week can seem like an eternity. I, I would call out a couple things before we jump into discussion with our guest today. One, you know, Donald Trump. Um, I'm talking to you on Wednesday, September 16th. He on the night of September 15th at an ABC town hall, a socially distant Town hall, but he still um, was taking questions from citizens. So what was remarkable at the ABC Town Hall was you saw Laura Ingram and others on Fox call it an ambush. The president was ambushed, which is, you know, the most preposterous thing of all time. He was getting asked questions by citizens. Uh, and, you know, they had some follow ups with him when they weren't satisfied with what he said or thought he was being dishonest. Um, and so to me, a couple of important things about this. One, is Donald Trump going to be able to there are still undecided voters out there or there are voters who are now leaning Biden but aren't firmly there are still open to voting for Trump. Is he going to have the ability in the midst of a pandemic and an economic collapse to um, basically gain a high enough percentage of those voters that are still up for grabs to make a difference. And, you know, last night, you, what you see is he doesn't really have interest. He's just very defensive. He continues to go down, um, you know, the lying road, uh, lying about his health care plan, lying about the epidemic, saying he wouldn't have done anything differently. So. I think that's interesting. So that might've been a forum where you thought maybe he's going to try, maybe not successfully, but at least try to do a little bit of outreach and say, yeah, you know, as I think about it, we could have done this differently or no. And then what does this mean for the debates? Uh, And if he brings to the debates with Joe Biden what he brought to this town hall, um, you know, my guess is he's going to make very little headway. So I thought that was very interesting. Now, Joe Biden has a town hall with CNN, I believe, later this week. Um, And so that'll be fascinating because I always found in politics the toughest questions came from voters, not from journalists, with all due respect to journalists, uh, in part because, you know, they they ask the question maybe in a way uh, reporters wouldn't or it's really based on their own. Uh, personal life or maybe something happened to a family member um, and just that dynamic is different than you know a reporter asking a candidate a question and that's kind of what people expect. It's two professionals doing their job. But but a citizen asking a question takes on a different dynamic. So um, I'll be interested uh, and feel a lot better about the debates uh, if Joe Biden can have, uh, you know, the kind of performance he had in that press conference a couple of weeks ago. Um, but he is somebody of great empathy. He listens. I think he will really think about the questions these voters ask him and not just launch into some screed. So to me, these this is fascinating to see Trump and Biden within a uh, space of about 48 hours. Uh, engaging with with voters uh, to to ascertain how they do, um, you know. I think our guest today um, is Fernando Amandi, who is um, uh, runs the firm um, uh, Ben Dixon Amandi. It was uh, founded by the legendary Sergio Ben Dixon uh, decades ago. Um, they work. Uh, in the corporate sector in the political sector work with nonprofits. Uh, they're based in Florida but they do work all around the country and and with with um, uh, with all types of consumers and voters but they have a specialty uh, in Hispanic and Latino voters and I want to talk to um, Fernand about one they are the company that put out the poll for Miami-Dade that came out a couple of weeks ago that showed you know Biden's margins there not what you would like uh, trailing both Hillary in, in 16 but certainly Obama in 12. Now, Biden is going to do better in other parts of Florida than Democrats, including Obama, when he won the state twice did. He'll do better with older voters. He'll do better, I think, in the panhandle up north. He might even do better in the suburban I-4 quarter uh, than we did. And so he's going to bring a lot of strength to this race. But obviously, you don't want to just offset that strength with weakness elsewhere. So we're going to go deep into Miami Dade, the Florida Hispanic community generally, which is incredibly diverse. Um, you know, you've got Cuban Americans, uh, people of Venezuelan descent, uh, Colombian descent, a lot of Puerto Rican uh, voters, uh, Haitian uh, uh, voters. Um, And then we're going to talk about uh, the, the Hispanic and Latino population in the rest of the country, starting with the battleground states where we know Arizona. Uh, has a huge, predominantly Mexican-American uh, voting population uh, that Joe Biden's doing quite well in. We'll talk about that. But also, you know, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, growing uh, Hispanic population uh, in those states. Uh, and that could be an important recipe of victory, both for Joe Biden and, and Senate candidates and House candidates. Uh, and talk about messaging. I, I think sometimes there's a view that uh, you just talk. Uh, To Mexican-American voters about immigration, Uh, and with Cuban-American voters, you know, they really want to talk about what's happening in Cuba today. Uh, Those are important issues, but uh, these voters are no different than any other voter, right, which is healthcare and the economy and jobs and education and climate change are at the top of their agenda. So uh, I think this will be a really interesting window into this incredibly important population, both as it relates to the 2020 election. But also, uh, uh, you know, the future of the planet, ultimately, uh, in terms of our ability to to work on climate change and uh, work on pandemics in a a global uh, way, uh, I think will depend on Democrats continuing to win a lot more elections than not. Uh, And right now, uh, you know, the Hispanic and Latino vote, depending on the state, Florida is an exception, um, where um, it is much closer, but you know, tends to be 65-35. Back in 2012, Obama won uh, Hispanic voters nationally 71%. That was a high watermark. So if that you know if, if we can get to the point where that becomes reliably 71 or 73 or 75 uh, it is going to provide such a strong foundation to win elections in a lot of states not just uh, states like Texas and Arizona as important as those will be and obviously those could completely change the complexion of our national politics uh, if we were to get more competitive uh, in Texas in particular but every state has growing Hispanic and Latino population and so conversely if the Republicans could find a way uh, maybe not not to win that population across the rest of the country outside of Florida, but could, you know, lose it 55-45, that's going to put a lot of pressure on us uh, to find those votes elsewhere. So I also want to talk to Fernand about uh, the trajectory of these uh, voters and kind of where he sees that going. So uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Fernand Armandi. Fernando Mondi, I'm very excited to have you on Campaign HQ. David, it is such a pleasure to be back uh, with you again and
0: uh, hopefully revisit some of the old good days that we had and talk about what's going on with these last 40
1: odd days before the biggest election in American history. Absolutely. There's so much I want to talk to you about. I am going to start with the poll that you put out recently that got a tremendous amount of national, maybe global attention, um, a deep look into Miami-Dade County in Florida. Um, well, by the way, I think a good model, I'd like to see a lot more organizations um, actually, you know, the media is doing more state polls now, which is good since the national polls don't matter in a presidential, but deep dives in 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 counties. So talk to me about what that poll said about Miami-Dade specifically, uh, and kind of where you see the race in Florida generally right now.
0: Well, well, David, one of the things that I think Democrats across the country know is there are always benchmark and titular areas of the country and and some of the key states that we know are going to be uh, harbingers for what Democratic performance might look like when we get to the election in November. And and I think uh, no one would argue that within the top five or six counties for Democrats across the U.S., Miami-Dade County, which is the southernmost and most populous county in the battleground state of Florida, it is, is right there. So what we wanted to do was just to take a look at how voters right after Labor Day, which is when we know the traditional time when people start really paying close attention to the presidential race, see the state of the race. And what we found there, David, is what I think has caused maybe some consternation, maybe some pause, certainly some reflection on the Biden side is that Joe Biden is underperforming in Date County. Uh, Compared to what we saw Hillary Clinton do just four years ago, and certainly in what uh, President Obama did in 2012 and in 2008, he was ahead by double digits because there's no disputing that Dade County is a county that's going to be won by Joe Biden. No one questions that. It does, though, become a question about what margin, what is his margin of victory? We learned four years ago, Hillary Clinton actually did a fantastic job in Miami-Dade County. She won it by 30 percentage points and left Dade County with a 290,000 vote margin, almost 300,000 votes ahead just in a single county. All, and of course, you know, to the, to the shock of many around the country, myself and others included, that margin was still not enough to uh, offset those massive margins that Donald Trump was able to run up in the northern parts of Florida with overwhelming support from white Anglo voters. So when we saw Biden at this stage, with a lot of folks candidly decided in this race, a very low undecided, underperforming Hillary, I think for a lot of people, the question was, why is this happening? And, what I, think, and I think the poll revealed, David, that the, the reason is there's some erosion with Hispanic voters.
1: So let's talk about that. So, um, you know, Fernand, you were part of the team back in 2012 that helped lead us to victory in Florida, including, if exit polls are believed, winning the Cuban vote, by a point, if I remember. So, uh, you know, Miami-Dade is like the rest of the Florida. It's like six countries into itself. So let's talk about what's happening there. So um, and we'll get to northern Florida, where Biden actually is showing outsized strength. But why is he not hitting the marks you'd like to see in Miami-Dade?
0: Well, well, I think the past... If we can think about it that way, David, is prologue here. And I think by looking at some of the things that were worked so successfully in the past, uh, I think we can help understand why they may not be uh, achieving full effect now. Uh, One of the things, to the eternal credit of of President Obama, really, and, and you and all of the others who led those efforts in 2008 and then again in 2012, there was an understanding early, early on that the Hispanic vote, not just in Florida, but across the country, was going to be a key constituency to deliver the president's reelection. And part of this came from the luxury of being the incumbent, but it was also a, a commitment and to understand early on, not six months out, not certainly six weeks out, not even a year out, but really a year and change before even the election started. It was an understanding that we needed to get on the ground early understand what was driving perceptions, what were the key issues of where the voters were, how soft was the vote, how persuadable was the vote. And we did that where we spent almost a year just doing research, understanding the different diversities of the Hispanic communities in Miami-Dade County and other parts of Florida and in the other key states where we knew the Hispanic vote could play a decisive role. And upon doing that key uh, kind of front-loaded research, we were then able to craft, customize specific messages, in some cases, tailored geographically, in some cases, tailored to a country of origin group, where we knew those were going to make the difference in solidifying support, support for President Obama and helping to define his opponent at the time, uh, Senator Romney, or, or th- at that point, Governor Romney. And David, fundamentally, The story here now in 2020 is we don't see the Biden campaign has followed that protocol. By contrast, the Republican Party uh, across the country, but here especially in Florida, because of the importance of Florida, they've almost adopted the Obama 2012 playbook and have almost been in permanent campaign mode here with those Hispanic constituencies, particularly Cuban-Americans, Venezuelan-Americans, Colombian-Americans, and Nicaraguan-Americans.
1: So, yeah, I mean, in 18, um, Fernand, both Scott, and I think Scott especially, but also DeSantis, I mean, they ran a great campaign to the Hispanic communities you just talked about, right? Oh my God, without
0: question. And if you think about it, you know, 18 in Florida was a, a heartbreaker and a head scratcher because, you know, this massive blue wave, this historic Democratic turnout across the country that delivers just uh, an unimaginable number of congressional seats, we flip the House of Representatives, somehow doesn't quite crest in Florida, despite the fact that we had what a lot of people thought was an exciting, energetic young candidate and Andrew Gillum running for governor, and a moderate Bill Nelson incumbent who a lot of people thought would be able to withstand Scott. But here also were the warning signs that I think we're seeing in these 2020 pollings. We saw Bill, we saw uh, Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis managing those margins, David, with Hispanic voters, Puerto Ricans in Central Florida, certainly Central and South Americans in South Florida, uh, no doubt the Cuban vote as well. And when we saw those warning signs, whether it was in July or August or even in early September, we didn't quite see the robust uh, reaction by the Democrats here in Florida. And lo and behold. On election day, we find that the Republicans capture those two plum seats, the governorship and that Senate seat pickup. And it's specifically on the strength of their being able to manage those Hispanic
1: voter margins. And, and that's the uh, that's, that explains their victories there. Right. So our strength in 18 in suburban areas, cutting back some of their margins in uh, rural and exurban areas with white voters was offset by their gains. I mean, that's the important thing here as you think about Florida. So, Fernan, obviously, you know, Biden is going to win, maybe with the exception of the Uh, Cuban community. He's going to win both in Florida and around the country, uh, the Hispanic vote. The question is, how large is that vote share and what's the turnout? But given what you just talked about in terms of what happened in eighteen, what we saw in your poll in in Miami-Dade just a few weeks ago, there clearly are persuadable Hispanic voters. This just isn't about turnout. Will you talk a little bit about who they are? And I know that may differ between the Venezuelan voter and the Puerto Rican voter, but but let's talk about who is still you know, you made a, a, a very important point that there's not many people who are undecided at this point. But whether it's currently, as we talk today on September 16th, or earlier in the cycle, who is the persuadable Hispanic voter?
0: Oh, it's an excellent question. And and I don't want to, in essence, uh, not absolutely agree with the point that, yes, there are persuadable voters, but they're just maybe not in the numbers we're used to seeing in previous cycles. But are they out there? Absolutely. And let me tell you who I think they are based on the data we're seeing. Number one, Florida has a tremendous amount of independent Hispanic voters, voters that are registered as independents where they also tend to be folks that have either become citizens in the last five to 10 years, or even some of those Puerto Ricans that have made the trek across from the island to the mainland and to look for economic opportunities in Florida, particularly those in the younger cohort. Uh, The others that we see are somewhat persuadable are women. We're seeing a lot of women that are more open to the Democrats this time around, and I think that's also reflected in national polling. But you also see to a certain extent some undecided women as well, and those basically run the gamut in all of the communities. The Colombian community, which is, is a big one here, even Cuban Americans, to the extent that you tend to see persuadables there, they over-index uh, David and women. So I think those are opportunities where both messaging and drawing contrasts and also having the presence on the ground, I can't stress how important that is in the Hispanic community, oftentimes We make the mistake of thinking that that's a solid vote for us because ideologically they're aligned with where the Democratic platform is, yet the other side out-hustles them just simply by being present and running, you know, you might call it a hugs and kisses love campaign where they don't talk about issues. So I think that's why these efforts of the Biden campaign re-engaging and redoubling down. You also see groups like uh, the Bloomberg effort that's gonna spend hopefully about a hundred million dollars. And even the Project Lincoln folks who've been doing incredible work saying they're not coming in to help in Florida as well. That might
1: make a difference here in these last 40 plus days. Right. So we still have time, even though we're scrambling. So let's talk about Florida generally. So uh, my f- now let's be clear, Biden's position in polls, to the extent we want to uh, believe polls, uh, public polls, of course, we believe your polls, Um you know he's leading i mean you remember back in 2012 there were news organizations that stopped polling the state of florida because they said it's in the bag for romney right so um, you know to your point about what we did is we looked at what the electorate could look like sort of irrespective of polls right and if we registered and we turned out and we gained 3 or 4% in this voter cohort maybe we could eke out a win which we're able to do biden starts in stronger position largely based on outsized strength for a democrat with older voters throughout the state suburban voters He's doing better in the panhandle than Hillary did. Um, So, but is this kind of what we're faced with, which is Biden almost assuredly will do that. I mean, he's got to still work. But does he leak enough down south to turn, you know, uh, a two to three point win into something where he could lose by half a percent? Like, what's your take on where the race stands today generally in Florida.
0: Well, I think that's exactly right. I think that's the nightmare scenario. And look, you know, you and I both know a lot of the people engaged in the Biden effort and the brain trust, and, and they're brilliant people, very experienced, and, and they know Florida very well. They, they know like
1: Florida, that. right. They know yeah.
0: Florida, exactly. But but one of the things I think we're seeing, and, and, and let me just state it, I, I think it is an absolutely legitimate premise to say, look, if we overperform significantly with white voters... Who represent the largest piece of the pie in the Florida electorate? We can afford to leak a little bit of oil. We can afford to have a little bit of erosion with Hispanic voters, and and still win the state. But I think, as you lay out, David, the reason that there is such uh, concern and consternation is if that becomes more of a leaking oil and perhaps an exodus with the Hispanic vote, and right. we don't quite perform with the white voters as we hope to do, and some of those folks come back home at the eleventh hour to Trump. Then you've got a situation where all of a sudden Florida's on the razor's edge. And I think because Florida is one of those unique states, all of the vote by mail ballots have to be received by the elections division on the day of the election. So we're going to have those counts, the in person early voting counts as well. Florida's likely to be a state where we're going to know what the numbers are and we're going to know what the result is. That same night, whether it's by midnight or one or two in the morning, that can help set the narrative and help prevent also President Trump try and claim a delegitimized outcome if Biden can win Florida and win it
1: conclusively. It's such an important point. It's frustrating that that it has to be a point we make, but it is uh, no doubt. It's a, almost a checkmate in the Electoral College, but also in terms of preventing Trump's histronics. You're right about that. I actually want to come back later in our discussion about um you know, what this could mean going forward. Uh, I mean, my view on politics is I'm not uh, for any leaking, right? Let's just add and hold, you know, strength. But, you know, if over a decade or two, the Republicans can t- continue to make inroads in the Hispanic community in Florida and elsewhere, uh, I think that is going to have profound impact on our politics. So let's c- uh, talk about some other states for now. And you obviously uh, uh, we will talk about the general elected as, as well as Hispanic voters. So talk about... Um, Kind of where you see Arizona, and then specifically, um, kind of the role the Hispanic um, voter will play there in terms of the outcome.
0: Well, you know, I, you know, I love. To, and As a Democrat, I'm certainly heartened by what we're seeing in Arizona, and you know, it's so it, exciting, isn't it? Yeah, you know, oh, it really. Is. It's like if we could jump into our DeLorean and go back to a uh, back into the past for a little bit, David. You and I know that, like, remember Nevada was the state in 2008 that we were really hoping to flip, right? That was the right. one we're all looking at because if we could flip that one, that increased our chances. And I think you're starting to see Arizona go the way of Nevada which has gone the way of also Colorado. It's almost a rock solid lead there where it, whether it's four points, three points, six points, I think one of the polls I saw this morning had it at a plus seven. And that coupled with the great performance that Mark Kelly's doing, I mean, it's a fascinating development. And part of the reason there, I think, is also the Latino vote in Arizona is starting to perform at the levels and is starting to represent a larger share of the electorate. But you also have some of those older retirees that are white Anglo coming back to the Democrats Uh, And I think the Biden effect there is helping. I think also the Mark Kelly effect. And that just makes the calculus that much harder. So we see these developments in Arizona. I'm very heartened by them because they've also been so steady and consistent. You know, this as someone who had, who, you know, who ingests the numbers with the same discipline and degree that folks like I do, you want to see that steady consistency. And that's what we're now seeing. It's almost like a straight line dating back almost nine, 10 months now. So I'm starting to feel stronger and stronger that, that Arizona at least looks to be solid blue almost.
1: So this will be an interesting way, I think, to talk about the difference between, uh, The Latino vote, let's say, in Florida, Arizona. So you mentioned in Arizona, Biden doing really well with older retirees, a lot of older white retirees. But of course, of every race, he's doing really well with suburban voters across the board. I'm sure he's going to do better in some of those smaller rural counties in Arizona than Hillary did. But he's also looking like he's going to get, you know, what, uh, 71, 75, 77 percent of the Hispanic vote. Now, the, that population is different than you mentioned, the Venezuelan community, the Puerto Rican community, the Colombian community, the uh, Cuban community. And it's not just the Cuban vote. So let's talk about that, which is Biden's probably going to hit. Where were we, for not? I think Obama in 12, we got 70. Well,
0: nationally, we got 71 percent, which is 71, is a record. 71, any right. democratic
1: candidate for president with hispanic voters. So we got 71. Let's uh, Biden looks like in Arizona he's going to be in that range, maybe even a little bit better. Florida obviously he'll be lucky to win it. So it's an interesting way to kind of compare um these two very different uh You know, Hispanic electorates.
0: It sure is. And I mean, here is where nuance is is so critically important, David, because, you know, sometimes uh, and and this makes sense, you know, folks that aren't as perhaps uh, attuned or, or, or aware of the Hispanic community, it tends to think of it as almost like a monolithic community, when in reality, we know that while the community shares many things in common that unite them, there are also significant differences. And what we see in the Arizona Hispanic and Latino and Latina electorate is one that is more Mexican-American in its orientation, a little bit more akin to what you might see in the West Coast, the California type of Hispanic. And those Hispanics in Florida that you drew the contrast to earlier, be they Cuban-Americans, even Puerto Ricans, uh, certainly Venezuelan-Americans, they don't necessarily see ideologically Uh, some issues in the same way that our Hispanic brethren in in states like Arizona, California, Colorado, New Mexico do. And I think that's why you see Biden doing much stronger, because that Mexican-American cohort of Latino voters in Arizona, much more of a blue, uh, Democratic-registered, Democratic-leaning group to begin with. Same thing in Texas, right? Same exact thing in Texas. and, And that's the other kind of uh, I, I don't know if I'm allowing myself to get excited about Texas you know a lot of people it's the it's the blue whale that we think one day will eventually come into into our column and and I think some polls suggest maybe this is the year but if it's anything uh, plausible to happen for Biden with Texas it's going to be also on the strength of this overwhelming support from Latino voters there.
1: So let's talk about North Carolina, a state where, um, you know, the Hispanic population, um, a smaller share of the electorate, certainly than Florida or Arizona, but a growing share of the electorate. And in a close race, um, you know, if it came down to 20 or 25,000 votes, your performance there can make a difference. Talk about um, and, you know, we won't talk about Virginia just because that is going to be solid blue. Again, it's kind of funny. It's like that was the um, the other story of the Right. Let's get Nevada into the blue column. Let's get Virginia. Now we're hoping Arizona follows suit. North Carolina does. But talk about North Carolina and the importance of the Hispanic community there. I think there it's uh, both vote share, but certainly trying to maximize turnout.
0: Well, North Carolina for me, David, is personal because even though I'm a Florida born boy, I was raised in the great state of North Carolina. And I remember when I was there in the early 1980s with my family, we were probably one of only a thousand Hispanic families all across the Tar Heel state. They're just, wasn't a lot of us, so it's been extraordinary to watch the explosive growth of the Hispanic population there, and with it, of course, the Hispanic electorate. And and again, I mean, you remember this we carried we carried North Carolina in two thousand eight, uh, and we just missed it. I think it was one of those few states that went the opposite way for twenty twelve. But, par- and, but part of the reason it was even close both times was because that growing Hispanic vote, which was, I think, at 1.6%, it grew up to now 7%. Now it may even be close to 10% of the Hispanic, of, of the overall statewide vote in North Carolina might be Hispanic. You're also seeing that uh, uh, go at a, at a 65-35 clip for the Democrats. So that's a uh, cluster of voters along with that research triangle area where you have to see those college-educated, uh, white voters in the Raleigh, uh, Durham area, those folks overperforming and the Charlotte suburbs where you got a tremendous black population that is overwhelmingly for the Democrats as well. That's what's keeping North Carolina in play. And that's another state that if you take that out of the Trump column, now you're talking about maybe a 330 plus electoral
1: mandate for Biden, not just a, an electoral college majority. And similar story in Georgia, right? Which is, I mean, obviously we've got the suburban strength, um, you know, that that, that was, it was so evident in 2018, obviously significant African-American uh, population, but growing Latino uh, population in Georgia as well. Absolutely
0: correct. And, you know, the big
1: frontier there, and I think the big opportunity, what could be
0: a coalition and alliance for the future of America, if we can figure it out in Georgia as Democrats, I mean, we're going to be tough to beat in a lot of states. It's the bracket the, the black brown coalition because we know that overwhelmingly certainly in democratic registration you have a tremendous amount of black voters there in the state of Georgia as as we saw when when Stacey Abrams you know depending on how you want to think about what happened there you know won and had it taken from her or, or came right. super close to winning that that gubernatorial race but yes the Hispanic vote there is also growing explosively and, and you combine those two votes. The Hispanic vote in Georgia with the black vote. And if you can somehow get at a 75, 80 percentile, then it becomes almost impossible uh, for the Republicans to win by the margins
1: that they were accustomed to winning to all throughout the early aughts. Yeah, it's, a, it's such an important point. So let's talk about some of the northern states. So uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. Again, the Hispanic vote is not... Um, as significant there as some of the other states we've talked about. Um, But... You know, if it's anywhere near as close as it was four years ago, um, you know, I know it's a trite ex- expression, but, you know, this could come down to a vote or two per precinct. And you have growing populations all throughout those states, right? And so what's your view, both of those voters, how they may different from um, their their sisters and brothers to the South, but also the the import of making gains there, Um Uh, as part of not just winning this election, but making sure those states continue more often than not in statewide contests to go democratic.
0: So let's take those in order of size and importance, kicking it off. You know, Pennsylvania now has double digit Hispanic registration in the state, you know, and depending on turnout levels, you know, they might even be a bigger share of the pie uh, than their registration. If you can get a lot of them to turn out and, and, and look, uh, if you're winning that Hispanic vote in Pennsylvania, uh, at a 65, 35, or even a 70, 30 clip. I mean, that's potentially an extra three or four or five points. And I don't have to tell you. I mean, we're not accustomed to winning, uh, some of these swing states by more than four or five, a lot, sometimes a lot less. And, and we certainly saw that in 2016. So you're absolutely talking, David, about a vote in the Hispanic vote in Pennsylvania that could very well
1: on its own. Potentially be decisive, especially if you can run up those margins. So, talk, Ferdinand, talk about the composition of that Hispanic population in Pennsylvania. Well, in Pennsylvania, What you do tend to see there is a a big Puerto Rican community, a lot of
0: those coming, uh, you know, your famous New York Ricans and those Jersey Ricans that are now kind of bleeding over into that Philadelphia area, and it's some of the suburbs there. You also have a significant Mexican-American vote, but also a Central American uh, vote that's enough there on the margins to make a little bit of noise. So not exactly what you might see a classic monolith like in uh, Arizona or California or what You might see Caribbean-style Hispanics alone in South Florida, but enough
1: diversity there that uh, that makes it very diverse and interesting in Pennsylvania. Right. Okay. That's very helpful. Okay. So you want to go to, what do you want to go to next? Michigan? So
0: let's go to Michigan okay. next, where... You know, Michigan is another one of those that flirts with being in the eight, nine percentile, could get up to 10 or 11 percentile, depending on turnout and registration efforts. But there again, I mean, we saw how close Michigan was last time. This is a vote that by squeezing out an extra five, 10, 15 points in terms of margin, that could by itself give you another point or two. It just helps maximize those margins. And it's really playing the game that the Republicans play in Florida. In those Midwestern states, and even in Wisconsin, which certainly is the state with the least amount of Hispanic voters, it's in the lower single digits, there again, a contest that could be decided by two points or less as it was uh, in 2016, just increasing your percentage of Hispanic voters and the margins there could also make uh, maybe a squeaker a little bit more of a
1: breather for Biden. And same goes for Iowa, right? Which even if Biden doesn't win, we've got a chance to win that Senate race. Absolutely correct. I mean, you know, Iowa is one
0: where you've got, uh, because of the big agricultural industry that you have there, uh, obviously a lot of meat packers, a lot in the poultry industry, Uh, even manufacturing there has migrated a a, a growing Hispanic population that frankly, David, literally did not exist uh, in the year 2000. I don't even think it got to 1%
1: of the... population. It wasn't. I remember when we were, you know, competing in the caucuses there in 2008, you know, it was something that just for the first time you could begin to see real numbers there if you overperformed. Bernie Sanders actually in 2020, this past election, did a great job of organizing um, the Hispanic vote there and it it can make a difference. Um, So let's uh, leave Florida out of this next question. Florida is, of course, always its own special case. (laughs) Um, uh, But you mentioned, um, you know, whether it's Arizona or uh, Pennsylvania. North Carolina you know 6535 and you know maybe you get that to 730 it seems to me when you look at um, this is not a question about 2020 this is really about the next 10 or 20 years you know, if the Democrats were uh, to get to the point where, you know, you don't reach the numbers we have with the black population, but, you know, maybe you get to 75, 77, that would just have a pronounced impact on American politics. Conversely, if the Republicans are able to bring that number down, you know, maybe to fifty-eight, forty-two. And we always talk about in politics, like how important it is for Democrats to cut down Republican margins in exurban and rural areas. It is important, right? But, uh, you know, when you think about uh, the Republicans job here uh, and again, we'll leave Florida out because that's a, a special case. But so so it seems to me maybe things will just stay the way they are. And it's 65, 35 for as long as the eye can see. But talk about that battle. Uh, and how can the Democrats um, get to the point where their vote share consistently outside of Florida is over 70? And what could the Republicans do uh, to bring it down to the fifties?
0: Well, I mean, again, the, the beauty of, of being on podcasts like this with with such smart folks like you that know it is we get to geek out, as you like to say, or nerd.
1: Yeah, nerd man, guys. nerd out. So, go, take go go to town. I'm, I'm yeah. going to get
0: my protractor, my yeah. in, uh, out, and 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 then do this by again. I think going backwards in time to explain what might happen forwards in time, you know, I don't know how many people remember, but, you know, we take it almost as an article of faith and for granted now that that California is perhaps the bluest state in all the United States now, right? I mean, it's the one state we know we're going to get those 55 electoral votes no matter what. But but that wasn't always the case. and, And it wasn't always the case not even that long ago. If you think about the 70s, the 80s and the 90s, California is the state that produces Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan and Orange County, you know, funds a lot of these Republican conservative think tanks and and the William F. Buckley types and all of the stuff that we see coming out of that state, which a lot of folks thought was the cradle of Republicanism and also a state that was not one that you could just check the box off for for Democrats in national elections. What happened though, however, in California in the mid nineties, the Hispanic vote became totally politicized around the immigration issue. Some folks may remember governor Pete Wilson and his, you know, demagoguery on immigration and prop 187. And almost immediately thereafter, we saw massive voter registration efforts with the Hispanic community, the Latino community, massive participation in the local elections. And I think a lot of people correctly and based empirically on the numbers use that as what happened and what made what was the biggest purple state in the country to the biggest blue state in the country so i say that david to your question about the future and i think the one state that could upend american national politics and frankly maybe send the republican party the way of the whigs if not make them a permanent minority regional party is texas because if we see in Texas the same phenomenon that took place in California, and you couple those 32-odd electoral votes with California's 50-odd, and if the same dynamic happens then in Florida, because we know New York is another big state but they, that, that is in the blue column, I just don't see how the Republicans, with the demographic changes that are also happening in parallel and in real time, can ever uh, uncover that
1: future Democratic majority. It's such an important, I mean, it's such an, I I loved your history lesson on California. You know, it's also when you look at the electoral college, it's not static. Back in the 70s, you know, in 76, Carter basically wins the South and a bunch of the planes. And what does Ford win? The West, including California and New England, right? All those are hard blue states now. So this, they, they, so, so. what's important about you, the point you're making, Fernand, is listen, there's a chance that we remain super competitive and able to win states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. I, th- I think there's no reason we can't. But it could be that those become harder, right? And we've got to offset that with Texas's and Georgia's and Arizona. So I think that's, and that's where I think we suffer because... Everybody talks about, well, the party ought to do this, the party ought to do that. There really is no party, as you know, right? I mean, it would be great if we're like, who's running the 10-year effort? And there's a lot of groups doing amazing work, but we got to almost irrespective of election cycles and candidates do the work in the Georgias and the Texases and the Floridas uh, to get there. So let's talk about Florida then. So what will it take uh, for us to reliably? So we're not going to get 65% of the overall Hispanic vote in Florida anytime soon, right? But how do we reliably win it? Uh, win the Cuban vote, and maybe this would be a good time for you to talk about the difference between younger Cubans, older Cubans, uh, you know, female Cuban voters and male Cuban voters, uh, but get to the point where maybe we could we could sniff 60 there more often than not. Well,
0: again, I mean, let me just start with a little bit of historical context on on Florida, just in aggregate to help explain why, you know, the Republicans always seem to bedevil uh, the Democrats here, in spite of the fact that we know how close the contests in Florida always are. I mean, even though we mostly lose these statewide contests, they're never blowouts. They're always decided by a point or two or even less. But, but David, to your point, one of the things that the Republican Party has understood for a long time, I would even say going back to the early 1980s, was that Florida was an essential state state for their national ambitions to be um, a majority party and to control the White House. So what happened then is that they almost got on what I would call a permanent campaign footing. And the permanent campaign footing was buttressed by understanding and recognizing that they had to also control the levels and the, uh, the, the levers of power in state government as well. So when you think back, Florida has had... Republican dominance of the governor's mansion and the state legislature now for over a generation. We're going on 22 years. And by the time the next Democrat can get in office, which is in 2022, it's going to be 24 years, almost a quarter of a century. And the Democrats have just simply been unwilling or stubbornly unwilling to do What with one exception and that exception was what Obama did in 2008 and 2012. And it was investing early. It was recognizing at the outset, I would rather spend $20 million, two years out in Florida, than spend a billion dollars with two months to go before the election, because the efficiencies of establishing the outreach, the engagement you can win. And how do we know that David? Because in 2012, And I remember this because you and David Simos and Messina and David Axelrod and the president were all breathing down Sergio and mine and all the folks working on the Hispanic efforts next saying, we got to improve with Cuban voters. We knew what our accountability goals were, and we just went out and worked it. We were in the community. We were counter messaging. We weren't ceding the ideological battlefield to the Republican surrogates and to the Republican office holders alone. And look what happened. Obama did the unthinkable. Unthinkable to me, I think, even maybe to you. Uh, he split that Cuban-American vote. And why did he do it? Well, he was able to also learn and get those younger Cuban-Americans that you alluded to, those that weren't as older and necessarily dogmatic with Republican, uh, with the Republican Party. He was also able to make the case to some of those older voters that, you know, policy had not really changed Things had not been done to make Cuba in a position to be more democratically, uh, a democratic society over there. And that's where I think you saw the opening in 2014 really assert a new pathway forward. But in addition to that, Obama didn't do what a lot of Democrats did in the past. And it wasn't just a demagogue on the Cuba C. Castro No rhetoric. He recognized that a lot of these Cuban voters, you know, they're, no, they're not going back to Cuba, They're in the United States and I've got to give them health care and I've got to make their quality of life better and I've got to give them jobs and I've got to help their kids have affordable scholarships and affordable um, loans to go to college. And those are issues that we engaged on on a daily basis and it had huge ramifications. So if the Democrats can do that, I
1: think they're in a position to win back and get to the levels of support that Obama got in 2012. So I'm so glad, Fernand, you made this last point. So whether it is uh, Cuban voters, I think sometimes people believe that, well, all they care about is um, kind of the history of Castro and the Bay of Pigs. And when you get to Mexican-American voters, um, you know, there's a view that, well, immigration is number one, as you know better than I, but, you know, the research that I've consumed through the years and decades is, you know, if you talk to a voter, whether it's a, a Cuban-American voter or a Mexican-American voter, you know, the number one issue is the economy, their job. Number two is healthcare. Number three is education. So talk a little bit about that. I mean, I, I think that uh, that to win the votes of those folks, of course, like any, you know, you've got farmers, right? And you've got factory workers and you've got healthcare workers. There's, there's unique issues that, that people care about, but you know, the the winning campaign is to convince on those issues, right, that you've got the best ideas and solutions. And I think sometimes that's missed. Uh, And to me, when you talk about a permanent campaign, whether that's advertising or just smart messaging and being in the community, yes, we're going to talk about issues of unique interest to to these populations, but it's to really pound every day that we're on their side. Well, I I will never forget, um, you know, when we were conducting focus groups, Uh, In the summer
0: of 2011, and certainly in the run up to the beginning of 12 uh, with Cuban American voters across the state of Florida and and reporting back that when we asked, you know, what was the most important issue to them? Like Cuba didn't even come up in the top 10. Like it was just not, not the issue. Now, that that didn't mean that they were ready to support, you know, uh, a Castro-loving Democrat or a Castro-loving Republican. Right. I mean, those are still gateway issues that you have to pass some sort of a litmus test, you know, on on that. But the animating issues we learned in that uh, uh, campaign in particular was health care. And why? Because health care was an economic issue because the economy was the other important issue for a lot of these voters who didn't have health insurance. Any kind of a medical event became an economic catastrophic event for them. So they were saying, hey, if I can solve my healthcare problems, it gets my financial house in order so that I can focus on other areas. And you're so, so correct in saying we do a lot what I call hispandering. And we (laughs) sometimes focus on an issue or two that we know is a signature issue to the community, but it becomes the be all end all issue. Uh, and immigration is another one nationally. It's become and it's regarded as a signature issue for the Hispanic and the Latino community. And it doesn't mean that it's not an important one. It's just not the preeminent one. And it's certainly not the exclusive issue of importance. So that's why engaging on these other quality of life areas, the economy, education, uh, jobs. Heck, even stuff like immigration and foreign policy,
1: you can engage on the other areas as
0: well, but not just one issue at the expense of all the other more
1: important ones. Yeah. If I remember back in 2012, and this would be true uh, in Nevada and Florida, I mean, and I think a lot of it was driven by the research that you conducted, you know, our advertising um, both Spanish language and and just uh, English language to uh, reach Hispanic voters, um, you know, particularly given that Romney went way off the reservation, as you recall, to win his nomination on immigration, uh, no different than Trump, really. But most of the creative and ads that we ran were not on immigration. And I think, you know, it. would because what voters were saying is, yeah, I think you put it right. It's a gating issue, right? So we can say, listen, I believe in immigrants. Uh, I believe in a pathway to citizenship. The other side doesn't. That's great. But then folks want to know, OK, well, tell me about my job <laughs> and health care and my schools. Uh, it's such an important point. So I'm curious, Fernand, in the closing weeks here. So um, there's a lot the Biden campaign can do. There's a lot that might like Bloomberg can do in Florida with his hundred million dollars, even in a big state like Florida, that'll go a long way. There's sort of there's like the campaign. What do you think? Um, uh, you know, whether it is a undecided Cuban American voter, uh, somebody uh, uh, from uh, you know a Colombian American voter who's not sure uh, if they're going to vote, a Mexican American uh, voter in Arizona who may be undecided. What do they need to hear from Joe Biden? And you know the debates will probably be the best opportunity. But he's doing interviews every day. He's got to a town hall uh, later this week. What do they need to see from him? And and I, some of that could be policy, but could also could be attributes, right? Absolutely. I mean, th- this is such a key,
0: key, key question. You know, it, it's become almost a cliche, right? It's it's part of the boilerplate language that we see in a lot of these Democratic uh, ads going back 20 years. You know, he'll fight for you. He'll fight. He'll fight. Well, I I cannot stress how incredibly important the idea of a lot of Hispanic voters, particularly those of Cuban-American origin, Venezuelan origin, uh, Nicaraguan, Colombian as well, they want a candidate that's got fight in him. And sometimes that fight means to punch back and to punch back harder when they are characterizing you as something you're not. Now, for example... We know that this issue and this framing of Joe Biden as basically being no different than Bernie Sanders as, you know, he's a socialist, like Bernie's a socialist there. He's a quasi-communist. You know, it's ridiculous on the face of it, right? But we cannot allow those charges to go unchallenged. And I think one of the things Biden has to do if he wants to max out with those voters here in South Florida, he's got to confront that head on. Put that issue to bed with fight and then pivot and say, and what I'm going to do is put you all in a position where, A, we can get back to our lives because of this disastrous pandemic that has probably resulted in a loss of life for someone in your family, a loss of your job, a loss of economic security, and then make it about them. If Biden can do those things, and I do think he has time to to make that message directly, aggressively, President Obama, we know, was always a master at doing this. Uh, I think he can I think he can
1: be a lot more successful than maybe the polls indicate uh, he is today. I agree very much with that. I mean, I think he's going to have to deal with, because it's not just, I think there's a view that, uh, and again, I, it's, it's laughable, right? But, you know, a lie gets repeated enough, some people start believing it, right? So there's a view that this Biden is basically an empty vessel for socialists. There's a view, well, is that going to work with blue collar voters in Western Pennsylvania? It can also hurt him. Uh, with uh, you know Hispanic voters in Florida and elsewhere. But I, I think toughness uh, is the number one um, imperative coming out of this debate. I really believe that if Biden, I also think, because I think that works with swing voters, whether they be Hispanic or white, you know, um, because there's a question like, um, is he tough enough for the job, right? So if he can deal with a bully Trump, I think it helps him with swing voters. But I think in terms of helping with turnout, people want to get excited. And we've waited four years. I mean, Chris Wallace did it for a couple of minutes. Minutes, right to somebody hold this person trump to account now some voters in that abc town hall last night did it and it was fascinating to see how poorly trump did when you know you puncture his veil of bullshit of you know the fox news breitbart ecosystem but i agree with you So I wanna ask you a question, Fernand. There was a poll recently that I found fascinating. It asked voters, I'll use the term Hispanic voters, but it asked voters, um, which term do you prefer? Um, to be referred to, right? Uh, and I think the options were Hispanic, uh, Latino, Latinx, or might've been a couple of others. What was fascinating is I think Hispanic was number one, Latino closely followed that, but then Latinx was down at like 2%. So just speak about that, because obviously how you communicate with people, it's not just the policies you talked about, right? If you're communicating and referring to people in a way that they find offensive or don't prefer, it can actually set back your uh, your cause.
0: You know, if if there's anything that, that people take away from this episode of- of, of this phenomenal podcast of yours, which, you know, uh, for me, it's one of my must listens, but I, I hope I hope folks remember this piece, especially those that, uh, you know, are, are trying to work in democratic politics and, and understand the importance of the growing Hispanic coalition. Uh, it's no accident that I've not used that terminology of, of Latinx at all. And, and I think it's a, a massive mistake. Now, th- that's not merely a personal opinion, but it's, it's data-based because as you talk about For the vast majority of the Latino, Latina, Hispanic community, however you want to to call them, uh, Latinx is a term that they do not feel is organic to the community, that came out of the community. They feel like it's a term that has been imposed upon the community to the extent that they even recognize it because, as you alluded to, ninety. percent Some odd percent have never even heard of the term and would never choose the term. And what I think is even more frightening, if you look at this from the bottom line of of what the political fallout is, there's a significant chunk that are offended by the term. Because this idea that others are now trying to label them different from a way they've labeled themselves or called themselves throughout the better course of their life – and, and and you know, and I'm sure it's well-intentioned. I don't say that it's, it's a malicious effort to term them as Latinx, but it's just not something that the community is at all comfortable with. So I don't quite understand the rush, particularly in the media and in other areas that we see in American society to, to adopt this term uh, as if it's the now nomenclature through which the community wants itself referred to as when it's
1: anything but that. Well, I hope everyone's listening to you because it is hard uh, for voters to listen to anything you're going to say If you're referring to them in a way that they either don't recognize or even worse, find offensive, (laughs) you know, they're really not going to listen to anything else you have to say, uh, regardless of the issue. So uh, I think that's important. Well, listen, Fernand, thank you for your time today, for all the great work and and perspective and analysis uh, you're providing uh, both in Florida and throughout the country. All you're going to do over the next coming weeks, and hopefully uh, we can talk on the other side and and celebrate a great victory.
0: You know, I I can't say goodbye. And obviously, thank you for the opportunity, David, to be on uh, this fantastic podcast but you know you were always our north star you were always the man that uh, gave us the no drama obama confidence so i gotta ask you i'm gonna put you on the spot even though i'm the pollster what do you think's gonna happen you think we're gonna pull this thing out conclusively uh, in november
1: well you know biden's lead has been meaningful and consistent and as someone who is a uh, Professor of, of Data and Numbers, you understand how important that is. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, and I think that's real. And I think it's different to be ahead head in a race uh, fifty forty-three or fifty forty-four than it is forty-seven forty-two, as you know. In fact, you know Hillary's battleground leads last time were real, but she was nowhere near fifty. Uh, and you know the other thing that's happening here, and I think uh, is is still underappreciated, is that the third party vote share is going to be way down compared to sixteen more at historical levels. And I always thought Trump could not win re-election. This is even pre-pandemic. If he had to get forty-nine and a half or fifty percent, if he could win, you know, if he could get forty or 48 again, I think it would be completely plausible. So all that suggests to me, you know, that Biden needs to land the plane here as opposed to, you know, fight through turbulence. But, so the question is, how could he lose? And, you know, I think if he loses, that means we don't win back the Senate. I think the only way, because Trump and, you know, that town hall with ABC was another uh, piece of evidence. Like, this guy doesn't have interest nor ability, I think, to really claim enough of the true undecided voter out there. So the only way he can win is if he has has almost historic outsized turnout where he needs it. And we fall flat. So, you know, 18, we saw in the congressional elections, historic turnout. I never thought we'd see that kind of turnout in my lifetime. Certainly it was so exciting. And a lot of it was driven by younger voters um, and Democratic base voters. But, you know, Republicans had good turnout uh, in some places too, uh, you know, particularly in some of those red state Senate races. And now Trump's on the ballot. And the one thing I know is his people are coming They are coming to vote. You know, they do not want to lose their champion to the socialist horde as they see it. And so that would be the thing that the thing that keeps me up at night is there. I don't think it's going to happen. But is there some – we saw this in Ohio in 2004 with Bush, right, where he just produced more votes than anybody thought humanly positive. Basically, every conservative voter, they got registered and turned out. So that's what concerns me. I don't think that's what's going to happen. But again, I think if Biden closes here, and particularly in that first debate, gets Democrats really, really excited he took it to Trump, I think that can help a turnout. So my view is I'd much rather be Biden than Trump, but I don't think we're out of the woods yet. Also, the only like the other thing that concerns me, Fernand, and when I say concern, I mean, Biden is in a really good place in the race. We, we should not be dishonest with people about that. Um, but, you know, I feel pretty good about Michigan. Uh, and honestly, I'm starting to feel better about Arizona than I am either Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, to your point. But it's not like I sit here and say, I see the 270. It's in the bag. Right. Like you can construct scenarios where it's like we just fall short in Florida. We just fall short in Wisconsin. Uh, We don't get the main second congressional district back. So, again, a little bit of that is contorting. But, you know, sometimes in presidential elections back in 08, other than Missouri, we ran the table. Trump ran the table in 16. Uh, You know, for the most part, George W. Bush did in 04. So sometimes one candidate gets all the breaks. So long answer saying, uh, you know, I feel honestly, I feel better about where Biden is today than I certainly felt you know, as it related to us back in 12, you know, so, so, and, you know, we won that race at least from an electoral college uh, with some margins. So, you know, I feel good about where he is, but I still think there's some danger landmines out there. Well,
0: that means I can unpack my bag and no, don't refresh my passport. So that's the best news. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But, you know, we got a lot of work to do, right? Because, uh, again, I don't think, you know, there, there's no scenario where I'm like, we got the 270 in the bag. And, again, I think Florida State, you know as well as anybody uh, in Arizona, those are checkmates if you win those two. It almost it doesn't matter, then, what happens up in Wisconsin and Michigan, although we clearly want to win those back, So,
0: onward. Well, Fernand, thank you, my friend. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much, David.